In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We have just finished uh, chapter 4 in Dr. Scare's Christology book, and so now we'll be looking at chapter 5. And I think I had said last week that chapter 5 is all we're doing. So if we're going to, uh, if we get through that, then we'll be done early, and, and that's just the way it is this week. Now, obviously, Dr. Scare has his reasons for setting his book up the way he does, and he's writing it mostly for a kind of seminary-level readership. So I certainly don't fault him in giving us the, the context, you know, two chapters on the errors, the various errors we've had to deal with throughout the centuries in regard to Christology, and then um, taking us through a couple of the controversial points up into chapter 5, Christology in the preaching of Jesus. But if I were to do this, and if I were to do this specifically in a parish setting, this is probably where I would begin. Let's get it right from our Lord's mouth. The assumption being, um, we believe, uh, the assumption being, um, he's the foremost teacher of theology. And of course, who better to reveal Christology than Christ? Right, exactly. Now, that doesn't work where you're writing to a more skeptical audience, or you at least have to you know, assume a more skeptical audience that you're combating for the sake of, of those who share your point of view but want to know how to combat that context themselves. So again, no fault on Dr. Scare, but this is a foundational chapter because here we see from the words of our Lord himself uh, his, his own claim to be divine, his own claim to be God's son. So we'll take a look at that. Of course, first we get introduced to a couple of historical figures who have... Uh, who have asserted that Jesus never claimed to be God or never claimed to be the Son of God. Uh, very famously, um, Bart Ehrman, who's kind of the equivalent of von Harnack and Boltman of our day, he's a, a skeptic who doesn't really believe that the Bible has any meaningful presentation of Christ in it, um, that it's just all written by the community and thus reflects the edited communal perspective of the church throughout the early history of the church. Anyway, he famously said, uh, made this point on a talk show, on a, on a nightly talk show, that, that Christ never claims to be God. It was on the Stephen Colbert show back when he had it. And Colbert, I, I, again, I don't know if he's truly Catholic or if he just plays the part of a Catholic, but um, you know, he said, what's the son of a duck? And Ehrman, this biblical scholar, said, a duck? You know, and it's like, it's like, yeah, he claimed to be the son of God. So what's the son of a duck? A duck, what's the son of God? God, beget, like begets like. And so, I, you know, it's a, it, was a great, it was a great comeback and a great statement. So all you have to do is, is have Jesus refer to himself as the son of God, and he's already claiming to be divine. Or you have Jesus take upon his own lips uh, an Old Testament title where divinity is assumed or divinity is uh, defined there in the Old Testament text, and he takes that upon himself. I mean, even in a sense, even in a most fundamental sense, uh, the, the fact that he is the Christ, 
and the fact that he is, un, is under no illusions. He, he knows he's the Christ. Well, the Christ in the Old Testament scriptures is a divine figure. So even in that, there's this, there's this self-knowledge and self-assertion that he is, in fact, God. Well, without further ado, let's jump into uh, page 43. For it must be as Christ's lips speak and declare, since he cannot lie or deceive. And that coming from the formula, great quotation. It must be as Christ's lips speak and declare, since he cannot lie or deceive. Continuing, in his dogmatics, Francis Pieper called attention to the claim of Adolf von Harnack. Now remember, Francis Pieper, early 20th century, uh, Lutheran theologian par excellence, just does great work uh, dogmatically, and it's kind of the standard, even if you disagree with him, you still have to reckon with him. So we ought to pay attention to his critiques. He called attention to the claim of Adolf von Harnack, and he's a, a late 19th century, early 20th century figure. That Jesus did not specifically say, I am the Son of God. As Harnack put it, the sentence, I am the Son of God, was not inserted into the gospel by Jesus himself, and to put that sentence there, side by side with the others, is to make an addition to the gospel. How great a departure from what he thought and enjoined is involved in putting a Christological creed in the forefront of the gospel and in teaching that before a man can approach it, he must learn to think right about Christ. Rudolf Baltman, he's pretty much entirely a 20th century figure, who reissued Harnack's book, from which Pieper quoted, believed that the Christian community developed the teaching that Jesus was God on its own, and then incorporated this opinion into the writings of the New Testament. Okay, so there's the, there's the, the assumption that I was just articulating at the beginning of this class, that that's how Ehrman and Boltman and Harnack, they think that the church just is the, are, they're the ones who invented this and edited it into the, edited it into the Gospels. <clears throat> you know, again, there's this whole view that the Gospels are this collective action of the church, which is without any historical record that the church did this kind of thing, that the church all sat around by committee editing and redacting the various parts until it fit what the community thought it ought to fit. I, it's preposterous. Okay, let me see if I can refine my place in that paragraph on 43. Orthodox Lutheran theology must directly confront the assertion that Jesus did not claim to be God. Traditionally, the Pauline epistles and John's gospel have provided the foundation of Lutheranism's high Christology. However, the synoptic gospels also provide a wealth of information in regard to Christ's self-awareness. Remember, synoptic, that's uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, synoptic, they all have the same view. They all tell us effectively the same narrative, just in different ways. By making use of the synoptics, one is able to challenge the position of Boltman and others and meet them on their own terms. This is not intended to divide the New Testament into various levels of authority, but to meet the argument on terms laid down by those who, like Harnack and Boltman, hold that the claim to deity originated not with Jesus, but with the early church. Such an approach is all the more important because the claim is still made. Carl Broughton, here's a 20th century ELCA theologian, in Christian Dogmatics, that's his text, 
a contemporary standard for a majority of Lutherans in America. At the time of Scare's writing, the ELCA represented two-thirds of Lutherans in America. Broughton holds that the full identification of Jesus with God came only after the apostolic era, though the roots of this tradition are found already in the New Testament community. So this is even being taught by one of the foremost professors in the largest Lutheran denomination in America. Quite sad. The usual designation which Jesus used for himself in his preaching is the title, the Son of Man. Whether or not the phrase was borrowed from Daniel 7.13 is debated. And by the way, even though it's debated and Scare doesn't want to say it here because he's trying to write a scholarly treatise and he doesn't want to have to defend or demonstrate that point, the majority of, of faithful biblical scholars understand implicitly that Daniel 17, or excuse me, Daniel 7.13 is that reference to the Son of Man is in fact referring to Jesus and Jesus is referring to that as himself. I mean, who, else, who else would the Son of Man be? Um, well, let's take, a look at, let's take a look at Daniel 7 real fast, just, just so you understand what I'm saying here. I'll take a couple trips into the scriptures today. So, Daniel 7, and if you remember, verses 9 through 10 is the vision of the Ancient of Days. So, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, if you're interested in all of this, here's my shameless plug. Join us on Sunday mornings for the study of Revelation, where we've looked at this text, we'll likely look at it again, and you can see the apocalyptic imagery and themes. Of course, Revelation is the grand climax of all of that, biblically speaking. Now, moving on. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. That's an important detail to keep in mind, okay? Because Christ is going to literally say, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So what else is he talking about other than Daniel 7? So, uh, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Who are we talking about? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Ancient of Days is the Father. The Son of Man is the Son. It could not be more evident. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
All right, so let's have that in our minds biblically now as we consider our Lord's use of the title, the Son of Man. Okay. So back to page 44 in scarce text. The usual designation which Jesus uses for himself in his preaching is the title, the Son of Man. Whether or not the phrase was borrowed from Daniel 7.13 is debated. The synoptic Son of Man sayings fall into three groups which speak of the Son of Man, one as coming, two as suffering death and rising again, and three as now at work. In all of these uses, there is the implication of deity. Like the Daniel passage, where it is used apocalyptically of one appearing before God to receive universal dominion, Jesus uses the phrase of himself in a similar way when he claims that all the nations of the earth will be assembled before him. Okay, so let's, let's just pause and flesh that out. You heard the word apocalyptically. That's, you know, apocalypse is a revelation, um, but the apocalyptic genre is using these sorts of uh, images, visions, images, signs, and symbols. So it's a genre. So the Daniel passage um, uses the Son of Man apocalyptically in terms of vision and imagery. And then Jesus uses the phrase in similar ways. That's, what, that's the point Scare's making. When he, Jesus, claims that all the nations of the earth will be assembled before him. Matthew 25, 31. So let's look at, uh, let's just flip forward to Matthew 25, 31 and take a look. As I, as I mentioned last week, probably should have mentioned at the beginning of our class this week, you'll want a Bible. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you're here and you've forgotten one, we've, we have some up at the sides. Feel free to grab one. You're not going to show up on, on camera scurrying around. The camera apparently is trained just right here, so uh, you'll be fine. Matthew 25, and this is 31. Let's just take a look at this text. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who were blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. 
naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me? Then they will answer also, or they will also, excuse me, then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, just as we saw in Daniel 7, the Son of Man has authority and dominion, lordship over all nations, all humanity. And what do we see Jesus teaching here in in Matthew 25? Again, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with his angels with him, and then we see demonstrated uh, the final and and last public, public judgment. Now, of course, tangentially, some key parts of this text immediately upon coming, he sends out his angels and they they make what division? They separate who from whom? The goats and the sheep. The goats are put on his right, or excuse me, on the left and the and the sheep on his right. Which by the way, if you look in Christian art or crucifixes, that kind of thing, almost always the Lord's head is tilted to the right. The sheep are on his right hand. And uh, on his left then the goats. And then he he shows his lordship and dominion over them. So already, what would you have to just put it in plain language? You would have the separation between the the unbelievers, the the goats on his left, and the believers, the sheep on his right. And then what proceeds is a judgment of works. But but notice, it's not the way Roman Catholicism teaches. You've got the whole mass of, of people, sheep and goats, all mangled together. And then he judges them on their works and says, Okay, all of you who have done the good things, come out and you've merited the position at my right hand. And all of you who have done too many bad things, you've merited damnation and the position on my left hand. Notice that that's not how it functions. It doesn't work that way at all. Immediately there's a separation. You are either one of Christ or not. You are either a sheep or a goat. And then if you are a sheep... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a single one of the sheep's sins or failures is mentioned, only the good things they've done. On the other hand, those who have rejected Christ, everything done apart from faith is sin. And so not a single one of their good works is mentioned, only what they've failed to do and the evil that they've actually done. And so, again, that's, uh, there is, whereas there is no condemnation for those who are inside of Christ Jesus, there is nothing but condemnation for those who are outside of Christ Jesus. It's quite binary, you see. So again, back to the point, that was our tangent simply on that text, but back to the point, look how Jesus uses the Son of Man. It's quite analogous to how it's used in Daniel 7. And whether it is or isn't, even in this judgment, you can see, I mean, what right does one man have to judge over all other men? Well, He's not just a man, right? Yeah, he's the God-man, the theanthropos. And so that is his, his right and privilege. Okay, let's carry on a little further with Scare on page 44. And we'll get a few more scripture references here and take a look uh, into, into the scriptures themselves. He also uses, this is Jesus, also uses the phrase to describe his present activity among men. The Son of Man is able to forgive the sins of the paralytic and restore his ability to walk. All right, so back to Matthew 9 for this. 
And this is, a, this is a very important text for establishing not only Jesus' awareness that he's the Messiah, but Jesus' awareness that he's God and that, and that by word and deed he's claiming as such. And, and this is not lost on his opponents. All right, Matthew uh, chapter 9, and let's just begin at verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now what's the problem when you have a human being saying objectively, as if speaking for God, your sins are forgiven? How's that go over? Who do you think you are to forgive sins? You know, the same thing happens to us when visitors, uh, usually from Protestantism, come into the Lutheran sanctuary, and at the beginning we have a general confession and a general absolution. And the pastor stands up and says, in the stead and by the command, in the place of Jesus, I've been sent by Jesus, and by his command, I therefore forgive you your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The objection to that immediately and without fail is, what is this man doing speaking for God? What is this man doing forgiving my sins? What is this sinner doing absolving me? Well, of course, what's missing there is an understanding of John 20, where Jesus specifically says to a group of sinners, if you forgive the sins of of others, they are forgiven them. Right, so, so Jesus gives us this key to forgive the sins of those who are repentant, to retain the sins of those who do not repent. That's John chapter 20. We execute that in our, in our divine services. Now, when we're forgiving sins, is there, is there a claim to divinity? No. There's a claim that the divinity has authorized us to do this. Now, does Jesus say, in the stead and by the command of my Father... No, he simply says, I, because the authority proceeds from him. I mean, it's, it's innately his as God's. Now, if you want to talk about the economy and the Father sending the Son to go forgive and authorizing the Son to go forgive, fine. You're not, I'm not going to quibble with that. But does Jesus in and of himself have the authority to forgive sins? Absolutely. But when he does this, note what the response is. So, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, he says to the paralytic. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. This man is claiming to be God. See, So it wasn't lost on his opponents what, what this action was. But Jesus, by his deed, is doing something only God can do. And they call him out on it. I mean, the problem is there's nothing to call out. He is God. Verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, another nod to his divinity, by the way, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no material proof of whether that's true or not. If he says, rise and walk, well, then whether his words have authority, whether he has the authority or not, is going to be immediately evident. It's definitely easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say rise and walk. Then he continues, verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
So look, he has authority on earth. And look at the connection then linguistically for us, where Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Now again, the point of the text is the same powerful word that Christ uses to speak the miracle such that the man who is lame can now walk, the paralyzed man can, can get up and walk, that same powerful word is the same word of absolution. It creates and sustains faith within us. It's received by all who believe. It creates in us clean hearts and renews in us right spirits. And all of this true precisely because he is God, precisely because even though if a mere man said it, it would be blasphemy, but he's no mere man. So you can see here in word and in deed, the claim to be God and the connection with his divinity and the title, the Son of Man. Make sense? All right, interrupt me if I say something wrong or say something that that confuses you or if you have a question or comment to make. All right, so that's, uh, that's Matthew 9. Now, let's jump back to scarce text. Keep your Bible open to Matthew. We'll go check out something else here. So we left off mid-sentence. The Son of Man is able to forgive the sins of the paralytic and restore his ability to walk, Matthew 9, 6, and is the Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew 12, 12. Okay, let's see what's going on here by flipping just a few pages forward to Matthew 12, 12. All right, starting at verse 9. He, Jesus, went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. What's the setup? The Sabbath is for rest. Healing is contrary to the Sabbath. Do you know how insane that is? That is so insane. That is the insanity of, of quote-unquote religion as opposed to faith in God, you know. Because, because look, who, who on earth can heal? Only God. You're going to say God can't work on the Sabbath? I mean, this, yeah, so you see the point. You see the problem. Um, and you're going to see the point then. So they try to trick him, you know. They try to trap him. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They said this so that they might accuse him. Verse 11, he said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of course, every last one of them would. They're not going to say, Oh, well, into the pit it went. I guess uh, it's the Sabbath. I can't help it. So he immediately catches them in their hypocrisy. If they'll reach down and if they'll break the Sabbath, okay, by reaching down to help their animal, in what way is he breaking the Sabbath by reaching down to help this human being? You see, so already he's won. Already he's caught them in their, hypoc- in their hypocrisy. Verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Work or not, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, again, Who can speak this way? Who can just assert this? None of their other teachers or authorities could. And if they did, they would immediately be accused of blasphemy. 
Because no one is allowed to interpret the law, especially interpreting the law in the way that Jesus did, that, that actually sort of like breaks the letter of it and yet re retains the spirit. I mean, the letter you shouldn't work, but the spirit is the law is love your neighbor as yourself. So what triumphs, the spirit or the letter in this instance? I mean, by, by the technical letter, hey, don't work, and that's work. But the spirit of the law is love, and so love, love breaks the letter. If, if those two things come in conflict as such. Okay. But who can speak this way? Only the Lord of the Sabbath, only God himself, only the one from whom this command, who, whose mouth this commandment has come in the first place. And so, he, and again, he's not quoting, he's not quoting any, uh, any rabbis here. He's not quoting even you know, Old Testament text as such. He's just saying, this is the way it is. So it may not be entirely obvious to us, but it was no doubt obvious to them that this was a claim to be Lord of the law and Lord of the Sabbath. And then he backs it up with his healing deed, with his miraculous divine deed, thus proving and demonstrating the point manifestly that he is the Lord. So verse 13, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. All right, so again, the connection here for our purposes. Look at how the Son of Man is used by Jesus. That, that language, how does, how does he understand it? And um, when he's calling himself the Son of Man, what is his relationship as Son of Man to the law? And he shows himself to be Lord of the law. All right, um, back for one more line from Scare's text. The Son of Man has life of such infinite value that he can offer it up as a ransom for many. And that gets us back to the point that if Jesus is just a mere man, we use the example of if he's just a mere man, how on earth does he get to judge all of humanity? Similarly, if he's just a mere man, even if he were absolutely perfect, he could exchange his life numerically for how many others? One. One perfectly righteous man could sacrifice himself for one perfectly sinful man. That's it. If he was only a mere man, that's all you'd have. So let's look at Matthew 20 and then see our Lord talk about giving his life as a ransom for many. So chapter 20, verse 28. Why not pick up at verse 25 just to get a little of the context? Jesus called them to him, his disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, well, we have a lot going on here, actually. 
But we've got this beauty thing where, this beautiful thing where he talks about the, the Gentiles, who at that time are like, you know, the, the powers of the earth, similar to today where it's Gentile superpowers, okay? And how does the power structure work? It's hierarchical. And those, those who are above give their commands down, and those who are below must serve those who are above. And that's just the way it works. But Jesus flips that on its head, doesn't he? And he says, not, let, it, let it not be so amongst you, so that whoever would be greatest must be least, must be servant of all, must be slave of all, you see. And then what's his, what's his point? His point is that the Son of Man, who is the greatest of all, even he came not to be served, but to serve, you see. So if the greatest of all comes to serve, and specifically he's talking about what service? The cross. I mean, that's, that's this business about giving his life as a ransom for many. That's the cross. So the Son of Man came not to be served, not hier- as a hierarchical king, you know, demanding that everybody else serve him, but rather the whole thing flipped on its head and him the greatest serving all others. Not to be served, but to serve, and to serve in this way, to give his life as a ransom for many. So in the first place, we see the inversion of authority in in a way that only God could do, in a way that only makes sense if he's truly divine. And then then, um, we see also then the point demonstrated that the Son of Man can give his life not just for one other man, but for many thus implying his divine status, his divinity, wherein he can give his life literally for billions upon billions upon billions of people. Because from the time of Christ until now, there have been billions upon billions upon billions of people. How on earth do you make atonement for them? Only if you're God. That's it. Only if you're God in human flesh. You have to be human flesh in order to make atonement for humans. You have to be God in order to do so for billions upon billions of them. So the Son of Man is most certainly understood by Jesus himself to be a divine title, and he uses it in just this way. All right, that, that then takes us back to, to scarce text. Any thoughts or comments on what we've hit so far? Again, the idea have, being that um, as Jesus uses the language of Son of Man for himself, he is using this as a divine title. So over and against the 19th and 20th century theologians that would tell us, hey, Jesus never claimed to be God. Only his church understood him to be God and claimed that he was God. Uh, from Jesus' own lips, we have the rejection of that. Yeah. So that people like Arnold, would they try to say Jesus wasn't God? Or just that Jesus never said? Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, were Harnack and Baltman trying to say that Um, Jesus is not God or just that Jesus never said he was God, right? It seems to be the case. I know, I don't think, I don't think that Skerritt gives us the answer in this text for von Harnack or for Boltman. I, I sure could be mistaken. I want to say those guys want to indicate he's divine, but uh, that he just didn't claim to be. But I don't know about that. I really don't know. Um, when he gets to Broughton, I think, I think Broughton, um, Scare explicitly mentions, maybe it's even in a footnote, explicitly mentions that he believes that uh, Christ is divine, just that Christ never said it. 
the church later said it. So maybe with that indication, Broughton's in a different class than those other men. I, but I don't know. I'd have to dig in to get a real answer for you. I just don't know. Good question, though. Okay, so um, page 44, just where we left off with that. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Uh, I'm sorry, who? Carl Bart? Boltman? Von Harnack? Broughton? Okay. All right. Well, some, some sort of uh, breach there in the telephone lines. But let's, let's pick up on um, 44 then, right after that reference to Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man title also contrasts the earthly life of Jesus with his former heavenly life. Okay, so again, he's calling himself the Son of Man, which again, it just, just look at the language. Superficially, he's saying, I'm a human being. To be a son of a man is to be man, right? So the Son of Man title also contrasts the earthly life of Jesus with his former heavenly life. Animals and birds of the field have a place to call their own, but the Son of Man does not have a place to rest his head, reference to Matthew 8.20. The one who possesses all things in heaven and on earth does not have even the most ordinary human accommodations. The phrase the Son of Man is found outside of the Gospels only once, where Stephen uses it to describe his death vision uh, of Jesus standing at God's right hand. Reference to Acts 7.56, but the first martyrdom recorded in Scripture, of course, other than our blessed Lord himself, uh, Stephen, and he refers to seeing the Son of Man uh, in heaven. Okay, It is never used of Jesus in the resurrection narratives. The best possible and most probable understanding of the Son of I think that that's a typo there, isn't it? The best possible and most probable understanding of the Son of Man title is that it is Jesus' own self-designation as the Son of God who has become humiliated for the sake of others. So in other words, Jesus is the Son of God. He humbles himself, thus becoming the Son of Man, being born of a virgin. That's scarce point. Perhaps better than any other New Testament title for Jesus, it conveys the confessional Lutheran understanding that according to his human nature, Jesus possessed divine attributes, but chose not to exercise them freely during his period of humiliation. The title is a summary of a complete Christology, that Jesus is both God and man in one person. And see, that's I think that that's the best way to... Just think, when you, when you think of the Son of Man, on its superficial level, the Son of Man means human. But as soon as you go look into the scriptures of what the Son of Man means, you find out it's divine. So in this one title, Son of Man, you can see that superficially, it refers to his humanity. Deeper, in terms of biblical revelation, it clearly refers to a divine one. So you have in this one title, uh, true God and true man in one person. Yes. When I was reading this, uh, I was kind of reflecting on Adam and Eve. And 
in a sense, they were holy when they were in the Garden of Eden. So they really, that, I think that's how true man is supposed to be uh, as we were in the Garden of Eden. So it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to say I'm a son of man, a holy man. Yeah, yeah. So, so if I could summarize your point, for Jesus to claim he's the Son of Man doesn't mean he's sinful. Right. To be man isn't to be inherently sinful, right? Right. Yeah, that's the that's the Manichaean error, uh, whereas just to be human is to be sinful. Uh, or, and of course, the problem with that is demonstrated in the incarnation. Jesus becomes fully man and yet without sin. And of course, in our own resurrection on the last day, we'll be fully human, but without sin. So sin is something that can be, yeah, so there's nothing denigrating in this title at all. Right. 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 Fully accords with him also being divine. Okay, let's see if I can find where we left off in that paragraph. The title is a summary of complete Christology, that Jesus is both God and man in one person. It refers not merely to the Son of God's having become true man, but focuses sharply on his suffering and the deprivation of the humiliation. In his heavenly state of glory, the Son of Man can obviously forgive sins, but in his state of humiliation, no one is able to recognize that the Son of Man is in fact the Son of God. Many people are homeless, but how striking is the homelessness of the Son of Man who possesses all things. Two pericopes point convincingly to the equation of the Son of Man with the Son of God. At the center of the New Testament understanding of Jesus is the confession of Peter. The pericope opens with Jesus' question about the true identity of the Son of Man. So let's look at Matthew 16 and just get this right from the source. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So don't miss the connection, in other words. Who is the Son of Man? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is the Son of Man? You are the Son of the living God. So to be the Son of Man is to be the Son of God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So that suffices for the point, but the Son of Man and the Son of God are equated there in Jesus' presence, and he says, yes. And not only yes, but my Father in heaven is the one who revealed this to you. So the pericope opens with Jesus' question about the true identity of the Son of Man. Peter responds that Jesus, the Son of Man, is the Son of God. The reverse image of this pericope is that of Jesus before the high priest, who puts him under oath to answer the question of whether he is really God's son. Jesus responds in words reminiscent of Daniel, 
that he is and that the high priest will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, reference to Matthew 26. So since we have Matthew open, why not just go take a look, even though it's mostly been given to us already. So chapter uh, 26, and then we're going to look at Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. We'll start at uh, verse 57 and just work our way through this little section. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Remember, this is the night of Maundy Thursday after they've captured him in the garden. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So you see, you see how Peter, um, he, Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Peter says the Son of God. Correct. Now the priest says, um, tell us if you are the Son of God. And look what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So two things. We see the equation between Son of Man and Son of God once more. And then the second thing is, as we saw in Daniel, remember the Son of Man is described as coming upon the clouds. So Jesus uses this exact language and imagery. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the priest tore his, or excuse me, the priest, yeah, tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Why? He's claimed to be God. So the priest, you know, again, it's blasphemy to claim to be God, so he tears his clothes. And again, it's not lost on Jesus' opponents that he's very clearly claiming to be God. It may be lost on 20th century scholars, but it's not lost on his opponents 2,000 years ago. All right. Both pericopes, referring to the one we just read, Jesus before Caiaphas, and the one we read earlier, uh, Jesus with Peter's response, both pericopes begin with a question. The first asked by Jesus of his disciples about his identity as the Son of Man, and the second asked by the high priest of Jesus about his identity as the Son of God. In the first case, Peter responds that Jesus is the Son of God. And in the second, Jesus responds that he is the Son of Man. Something is pledged to both Peter and the high priest. Peter is promised that his confession would be the rock upon which Christ would build his church, while the high priest is warned that he will meet him as the Son of Man when he comes in judgment because of his failure to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Peter, again, Lutheran dogmatician, notes the Son of Man, then, is the miraculous offspring of the human race in whom the Son of God became man. 
the concept of deity in the humiliated form of the Son of Man does not exhaust the meaning of this mysterious phrase. It is unlikely that this phrase originated with some anonymous Christian in the early church, since it is used with only one exception, by Jesus himself. If this were a phrase invented by the early church, then it is strange that it is never used in the epistles. Clearly, Jesus uses it of himself as a substitution for the personal pronoun I, but in all of its uses, an official work is indicated. Okay, so back to the main point of the chapter, Christology and the preaching of Jesus. In terms of the Son of Man, are we convinced that Jesus preached and understood himself to be divine, to be uh, God's son, true God and true man in one person. Absolutely. And that really is the point here to four. In our next paragraph on page 46, we enter a, a second uh, argument. In addition to the son of man title, as Jesus' self-designation for his deity, it can be shown that he referred to himself as the son of God and God. Though, according to the Gospels, these words are not spoken directly by him. John A.T. Robinson reflects the thinking of many scholars when he says about the New Testament that, quote, it does not say that Jesus was God simply like that, end quote. This is simply not true, especially in light of the fact that Jesus refers to himself as God on a number of occasions. According to the trial scene before the high priest in both Mark and Luke, and uh, hang on just a second, I'll finish that thought. Jesus answered forthrightly the query that he was God's son with, I am. All right, well, what I want to do is go look at Mark 14, but I think that this is a typo um, because I don't think that that's the right text. I think it's Mark 14, uh, starting at, at 60, verse 60. So let's take a look at that. <clears throat> All right. Mark 14, verse 60. What it, what, do you know what it is? It's not, it's not 6, is it? It's not 14.6. Jesus before the council, 53? Surely that's it. Yes, it is. Okay, it's verse 53, so I'll have to correct that in my text. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 53, and of course, um, 62 is the actual verse we want. What did I say? I said 60? That's not too far off. Let's pick up at 60. Why not? And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? All right, parallel text to where we just were. What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, 
I am. Okay, so again, are you the, I mean, are you God's son? Are you the son of the most blessed? Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. Okay, so yeah, your reference there is chapter 14, verse 62. All right, back to, back to scarce text. So Jesus, you know, again, the assertion is, well, Jesus never says he's God or God's son. Nonsense. He says so right here. Scare continues. According to Mark 14, 64, Jesus is found guilty of blasphemy. The most sacred Old Testament name for God is the word Yahweh, a designation which was unique to Israel's God. Yahweh is derived from the Hebrew verb to be. And in a shortened form, it would simply be I am, the self-designation used by Jesus before the high priest. Uh, and in fact, I, I think I looked up that text at least at some point, and I think it's ego I me. So if you're familiar with that usage, um, frequently from the mouth of Jesus where he says ego I me, it's I am that I am. Uh, when, you have the, when you have the burning bush back in Exodus 3.14, and Moses says, you know, what is your name that I may tell the people who sent me? And God says, I am that I am in, in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. It's, he says, ego I me. I am that I am. So when Jesus said, takes up the, I don't know how to describe it. Frequently when Jesus says I am in English, even terribly in English, sometimes it's I am he. Like, yeah, that's me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, ego I me, I am that I am. So, uh, anyway, that's the case here. As, uh, so, Mark chapter 14, verse uh, 62. He not only says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He, and he does not only say, I am, in regard to, are you the Son of the Blessed? He says, I am that I am. In other words, the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, that's me. So clearly a claim, then, uh, of Christ to be divine. Let's see if we can uh, get to the end of this paragraph and then call it a day. The name of Yahweh had become so sacred among the Jews that by the New Testament era, Yahweh had fallen into disuse. And Adonai, which means Lord, another Old Testament name, was regularly substituted. So again, you've probably heard this, but the point is that at that time, you, nobody was saying Yahweh, it was too holy, it was too sacred, so they were saying Adonai instead. In the Septuagint, now again, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and it's the one that primarily the apostles quote from. So it's, it, it has as much, if not more, authority than the Hebrew text. In the Septuagint, the Greek word kurios, which also means Lord, is regularly used as the translation of Yahweh and Adonai. Lord is the usual New Testament designation for Jesus in the sense that he is the incarnation of the Old Testament Yahweh. So, in other words, where you see Jesus being referred to as Lord, um, 
you remember when, uh, after the resurrection, Thomas doubts, and then the Lord is skeptical, and then the Lord says, here, Thomas, put your fingers into my hands and your hand into my side. No more doubting, but be believing. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Yeah, so... Um, that and my would be even my. You know, you could think of it like that, like the Lord that is Yahweh himself, my very God, even my God, like the one who is my God. Um, what's your alternative? Lord, uh, translating that somehow is like boss, <laughs> my boss and my God. <laughs> I mean, it's, you see, so when it's applied to Jesus, for example, in the text I just brought up, it really is saying you are Yahweh, the living God. That's his confession. Okay. All right. Um, so Jesus' self-designation as I am was a clear self-appropriation of God's most sacred name. His use of the divine name was scandalous enough, but his application of it to himself brought the charge of blasphemy. Matthew reports that the crowds taunted, this is a crucial point, Matthew reports that the crowds taunted the crucified Jesus with the words, he trusted in God, let him save him if he wants. Where, by the way, do those, trivia, where do those words come from? Psalm 22. So what's, I mean, what's amazing is, what is, because they don't understand the scriptures, they end up quoting the scriptures in exactly the way the scriptures said they would do it. They just don't even re have the realization that they're the enemies, that they're the bad guys. He trusted in God, let him save him if he wants. Because indeed he said, I am the Son of God. So we don't have to go look that up in Matthew 27, 43, but we could if we wanted. So if Jesus never said, I am the Son of God, why on earth are the crowds taunting him, saying, look at him, he's the one who said he's the Son of God. If he's the son of God, surely God his father will deliver him. So their taunt reveals that they clearly understood and that Jesus, in fact, did say, I am the son of God. So you have this right from hostile witnesses, as it were. Scare continues, even some conservative scholars committed to the preservation of traditional church doctrine are not willing to say that Jesus actually said, I am the Son of God. They should re-examine their position on the basis of Matthew 27, 43, the text we just covered, where the crowds are throwing back into Jesus' face his actual words, I am the Son of God. Thus, both at his trial and crucifixion, the enemies of Jesus understood that he, in fact, not only said in so many words that he was the Son of God, but that his message and its style of delivery powerfully conveyed the same impression. All right. So let's, uh, I, I see that we're out of time. So let's simply stop there for this week, and we will pick up next week at uh, page 47, the first full paragraph. The Lord be with you.